What are executives missing the boat on and what do they need to think about when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning? This week in the Tech Emergence podcast, we speak with John Straw, who's had a number of his own businesses in the digital space. He's now in London, but he's had companies here in the United States as well as the UK. He's currently a senior advisor to McKinsey & Co., as well as a senior advisor to IBM Watson IoT. John works with a lot of executive teams in terms of finding new applications for artificial intelligence and finding ROI with those technologies in industry. We speak with John this week about how executives can get up to speed on this technology, what degree of knowledge and in what way should they learn it so that they can find the opportunities in their own companies, and what John sees as some of the biggest areas of oversight that executives have, what they're really missing out on in terms of what's preventing them from finding those applications that could keep them up to speed with their competitors and with the big boys in technology. So without further ado, we'll dive into this week's interview with John Straw. So, John, I know you've obviously grown your own businesses from scratch, smaller companies, and are doing a good amount of work with kind of the big guys. When you are in the C-suite these days, obviously machine learning is, is something that's relevant for large organizations, something that maybe executives should be considering. What do you see as kind of going over the heads of C-level folks that maybe shouldn't be in terms of where AI and machine learning is headed? It's a great question. The answer is applicable to virtually any business, irrespective of whether it's a large enterprise or actually a small business. But I do a significant amount of speaking to a C-level, and I always start off the conversation as, okay, who knows what big data is? And universally, the hand will go up in the air, and they all sit there and, and say that they know what big data is. And the immediate subsequent question is, which segues very nicely into the whole AI machine learning stuff, is, okay, who knows what to do with it? And there is this series of slightly embarrassed blank faces, and this is pretty much universal. And the way that I would probably typify that is that most organizations, most C-level people understand what this stuff does, but they don't know what to use it for. So it's the use cases, it's the apps, et cetera, that really we as a technology community need to be able to be creative around those things with them. And I use one very specific case there, and I use that pretty much universally, and they immediately get it. Now, it's also worth dividing this very, very quickly in the fact that there are two ways of looking at this. With IoT, for example, with advanced analytics, cognitive analytics with, with IoT, a lot of the focus around that is actually in the CFO's office because it's cost-saving. But the flip side of that coin is I always ask the question, is how does a client make money. I'm talking about one of my clients here. How does a client actually make money out of this technology? So I think there's two very, very interesting opportunities there. The one side of it is the consulting side actually has to help you save money. But then there's the entrepreneurial side which actually has to help you make money out of it. And of course, with a CEO, normally the attention is going to be at the point that actually making money is is a really big thing. So those cases, actually, there's a lot of brainstorming goes on about how we use it. But I'll comment perhaps in, in the next part of what we talk about is actually is my de facto case study of or use case scenario about how you might make real real good money out of this. Maybe that'll be the, the quick next place to touch base here, John. Uh, let's say we are talking about, you know, medium or, or larger firms, people with, you know, maybe, you know, a couple hundred folks working for them. Larger companies, they've got a lot going on. They they probably have some equivalent of what they might call quote unquote big data somewhere based on what they're collecting, what they're doing, what their business involves. What are some sort of applications? And and this is obviously what, you know, to further your point, 
people kind of understand vaguely the concepts, but not really how that would work to, to do anything fruitful. What are the applications that maybe are, are common enough where people should understand them? They should know that this is possible in a business like yours. They should know that these applications can make a difference or will keep you ahead of the curve or are likely to do so. What are some of those applications that you consider to be important well, enough for CEOs to not miss? Let's especially address thing that you picked up earlier on, and that is I would say that most organizations don't know what data they've got. And then they don't know what data they haven't got, if you see, if you remember the Donald Rumsfeld yeah. statement. Yeah. So I think the first thing is, is that, you know, data audits are a really, really big part of it. That's both internal data audits and then having the imagination to be able to actually understand what external data, for example, that I could use from weather.com via an API to enrich the data set. And the way that I explain identifying opportunities is simply think about this as the use of a Venn diagram to go look for those big, big data sets and then the consequent machine learning. That's one part of it. The really big part for me, the bit that I got very excited about was chatbots. Now, there's lots of gimmicks around chatbots. You know, there's lots of discussion. As Facebook said, there's 10,000 developers working on chatbot technology. But we haven't yet passed the Turing test. But that's not stopping where the real opportunity lies here. To some of this point, let's just talk briefly about chatbots in the in the call center environment. So you've got okay. the chatbots that are actually the post sales. So these are commonly scripts that you might want to be able to use to help, help talk customers, talk with customers. And then you've got them in the sales environment. So let me give you an example in the post sales environment. I recently bought a new iPhone and I was having difficulty getting it to sync to iTunes. So I went onto the Apple site and I started a conversation, a screen conversation with what I immediately thought was, in fact, a base-level chatbot. And the reason I immediately thought is because I got an instantaneous response at peak time. And then what I saw was I was put through, and this is not AI yet, but what I was put through was essentially a decision tree, decision tree question. So I was being prompted through this decision tree to about question number six until at that particular point I know that I got a human operator appear. Now, the reason why this is important is because, firstly, the screening part of it, the decision tree part of it, saves the company quite a lot of money because you're engaging with the computer first, thus it scales, and secondarily increases the user satisfaction because they get an instantaneous response yep. rather than a 45-minute yep. wait. The interesting point about this will be is as we progress more with deep learning and artificial intelligence and we get closer and closer to answering the Turing test, is that the human operator gets moved, moved further and further and further down the line right, at the point that they need to intercede. So now it may be question six with Apple. Actually, in 12 months' time, it may be question eight. Or 16 months' time, it may be question 13. Yeah. And as we move there, we see less and less intervention required by a human operator and more done by the bot itself. And that's really important because the user will never really see the difference between the two, but the organization will see it firstly in cost saving, but then the upside is a better customer experience. I think that's, that's one really important. And I talk this through with a lot of CEOs and immediately everybody gets it. So that's the one side of it. Got it. Okay. I like that one. Let me just touch on the other side of it. Sure. I was chairman of the Thomas Cook Group of Digital Transformation, which was a big British holiday company. And I noticed one thing that was very clear, that our online conversions were in the region of around 1%, and our offline conversions, in other words, customers going in to talk to our retail store operators, was in the region of 60%. Because 
the sophistication of the question asked inside of the store with a human operator was significantly higher. For example, find me a holiday for a family of four, including two children less than eight years old, within 400 feet of a water park where the average temperature is not less than 24 degrees, within four hours flying time from Dublin at a cost of less than 500 euros per person. There is no way in the world currently could Google answer that question. It just simply returns what it thinks to be the best or optimized web page for it. But what we know is that Google's heading in the direction, in fact, is starting to apply AI to all of its search results now. So where conceivably we start to look is that the computer or the AI system will be able to answer those very sophisticated form of questions from consumers, again, increasing and delighting the consumer to the point that the closure ratio will raise accordingly. So two opportunities there, both around the chat question scenario. One is saving money and increasing the net promoter score through because of customer delight. And the other one is making money by actually increasing the ability to answer questions in a very sophisticated way and therefore increasing closure ratios. Got it. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and these are both sort of chat related. Interesting to see where Google's going to go in the future. I mean, who, who knows if they'll get into holidays themselves? You know, they've got a insurance product now where you can kind of search for insurance in that sense. And I'm sure they'd like everything to be dialed in to the degree of accuracy that, you know, sitting down in a, a you know, a Thomas Cook office or whatever would be where, where someone could really sift through all the options and really lay it out. Obviously, when that can be automated, there's benefit. And presumably, most larger companies, even if they don't, like even a B2B company that doesn't have a ton of consumers calling in, it sounds like if they have anything that resembles search, anything where people can find them and needs to learn more about them, what product, what service might be best for them. Even that by itself is kind of a search application. So the, the latter example where you talked about those improvements in searching, you know, find me, you know, and it could be a chat interface, 400 feet from a water park, doesn't get above this temperature, 500 bucks per person. That seems like a search issue. You know, this is like, okay, if you offer these products and, and services, it's search for what is the perfect one. And that, that seems to apply broadly across companies. Let me know if I'm getting this right. I think it would be fair to say, there is a but here, and that but is this, is that for many of the smaller organizations who have or won't have access to the sort of engineers or indeed the knowledge bases that can be mined, or the engineering for that matter, yep. to be able to do it, is that they are going to be reliant on this sort of stuff being done by Google. So let's say, for example, an industrial air conditioning unit business was actually a potential customer ringing in or wanting to have a conversation about air conditioning in a motel then it's very likely that Google will be able to answer that question because, of course, it's got the accumulated knowledge of a copy of the internet. That presents a platform for the small business to be able to advertise through Google's knowledge in order to get product and brand exposure at that moment in time. So I don't necessarily see that all businesses will take on artificial intelligence and customer conversations by doing it themselves. Many of them will do it through Google, through Facebook Messenger, through WhatsApp, etc. In fact, we know that there's lots of chatbot applications already there. They're crude, but they will definitely get uh, more sophisticated over time and therefore more useful. Yeah, and, and they'll tease out sort of what works and what doesn't, which we're, we're still clearly in that phase with regards to chatbots in terms of real hardcore deliverables for different kinds of business models. You know, there's a couple guys, I think, pretty clearly nailing it on Facebook Messenger this probably a lot more trying to figure out what would work and what's going to feel clunky. That being said, that's a very important point. A lot of companies, I would wager to guess, certainly within a certain scale, 
you know, of size, like below a certain size, for example, but even broader than that, I would say it would feel to me as though a, a vast majority of companies that leverage these applications are not going to be building them in-house, but are going to be leveraging the big boys in some way, shape, or form. Are there pros and cons about that that are maybe worth considering for large organizations? You know, like what are the kinds of features and functions, you know, with regards to machine learning that maybe you do under situation XYZ want to just let Facebook or Google kind of run that show? And, and at what point does it make sense at what threshold to really start contemplating kind of building things in-house? You know, who, who would draw what lines there? Because it, it feels like the long-term consequences of that would, would matter for a company. These are important applications. Well, yes and no. You've got to bear in mind that it's a huge amount of open source, very good quality AI code in the marketplace. Um, so, for example, Google has got its uh, SyntaxNet product actually out in the open marketplace. Very, very good for understanding language. Apparently, it launched Passing Map Passface. Yeah. Right now, not. But apparently, it's an excellent passing facility, again, in open source. So, the value is not in software. The value is in data. And this is, I think, really important for every single company that they understand what data they've got and what format it is. And then they use third-party developers to actually make sure that the data is a level playing field by using passing functionality and so on and so forth. The value is no longer in code. The value is in the data that sits behind it. And a lot of organizations don't have that data. At least it's not surfaceable data and it's not readable data. But again, I come back to what I said earlier on, is you've really got to do an audit. You've got to understand, firstly, what data you've got secondarily, what data that you don't know that you've got, and then thirdly, what external data sets that you could actually merge into all of that to make something really useful and really interesting. I mean, classically, Facebook, with its 98 points of data, allows really very tight precision micro-targeting and micro-segmentation. And this is available to a lot of businesses by combining different external, internal data sets, but you've got to do a data audit in the first place. The value is in the data, not really in the code any longer. This is why you see IBM and Google and Facebook and everybody else sort of giving away, quote unquote, the open source version of whatever their machine learning application is, whether it be Torch or, or TensorFlow or what have you. So it, it sounds as though, yeah, where, where your machine learning applications are lies in, in sort of what the unique data sets are that you have and, and what you can add to that. You know, so I think, and maybe you'd have another good example to flesh this out before our last question, John, but I, in, in speaking to the... Previous fellow we, we'd interviewed from IBM, he talked about kind of a trucking company. You know, if, if you're aware of all the various stops, if you're aware of the speed of trucks at given times and arrivals and pickups for all your different individual trucks, and you can layer weather on top of that, you may come to realize that anytime there's this kind of a temperature or anytime there's this kind of weather or even a chance of this kind of weather, you're better off not using these highways at all and going around this way or something like that, that this would be sort of a, a potential tangible yield for yeah. machine learning application to really parse out where could these patterns be optimized? Where could these goals be met better? What are some other maybe tangible examples that folks tuned in could get a grasp of, of what a unique data set with company X could look like if we combined it and if we really made sense of it? What are examples maybe you've seen? These are all very nascent yet. So IBM's got some amazing technology, image recognition technology in the radiology space. And there's also, I just had a conversation with a surgeon that lives around the corner from me fairly recently, and he said, actually, radiology is about to get severely disrupted by machine learning capability mm -hmm. to identify issues 
at the point of the scan, so to speak, rather than actually waiting for a subjective human brain with perhaps not enough experience to be able to do exactly the same thing. So I think we've got some real-world stuff going on here already. It's down to the imagination of the organization with the data set to be able to use it. Uh, Let me give you another one, which I think is about to be forthcoming. And this is a Google initiative, and it's a phenomenal initiative. So I recently saw a YouTube video. I'm not sure that I should have seen it, but I saw a YouTube video where Google was doing apparently image recognition inside of the video, and it was phenomenal. They identified, for example, a video of mountain biking on unicycling, and they identified the two critical points there. And that transforms the advertising business straight away. Because at the moment, if you watch a BMW M4 being driven around by driven around Nürburgring, you get shown uh, an advertisement for Kleenex. Really what you want to do is you want to be able to say to Mercedes, hey, look, this is a BMW M4 being driven around Nürburgring. Why don't you show an ad for an AMG Mercedes equivalent model to be able to do it? That transforms the advertising business, the visual advertising business, because all of a sudden it becomes absolute real-time contextual advertising. And that's another really great use case. Unfortunately, it's a great use case from somebody who actually already owns most of the advertising market. So there'll be even more consolidation in that area as it currently stands. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, man, that that sounds like a phenomenal opportunity for YouTube. (laughs) It permits phenomenal opportunities for all the other companies, but of course, it's going to go through one paywall, at least at this point. I mean, you, you've got like your Vimeos and whatnot, but in terms of like the folks with the sophistication really implement it. Yeah, it would make sense. I mean, you know, you're halfway through a video, it's a longer video, maybe 20 minutes, and there's, you know, an, an ad bar starting at that 10 minute mark. And if it's a documentary about Hawaii or something, you know, you may not want to see Kleenex. There may be something about vacations. There may be something travel related or at least something that has a shot of really sinking in with this particular user given this particular content. And instead of having to tag it by every 20 seconds, tag what's going on, if there is a machine that can understand, well, they've been watching Hawaii for the last 10 minutes. Why don't we show them something about Hawaii? Like you said, I mean, pretty large opportunity. Just get a bit more granular with that for a second. So let's say, I mean, in the UK, the fad at the moment is cooking programs, baking programs, baking competitions. So imagine that you're actually watching a YouTube of a baking competition and the ads that are being shown for you are the constituent parts of the recipes that are being shown on screen. I mean, that's just awesome for advertisers. However, and there's a really big however here is this, is the value is in the data and the data is becoming owned by the big five technology players. And thus, there's a polarization going on. And as a direct result of that is many of the small to medium-sized businesses will have to go into cooperation, partnerships, commercial partnerships with the big five technology companies in order to be able to access those AI systems and the data inside of those AI systems accordingly. So I do detect a certain level of polarization going on here where lots of businesses won't have the data sets, won't have the technology skills to be able to exploit them, won't know what's available in the marketplace, and will therefore simply have to pay for access to the AI results, if you like. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see how the future pans out there, but you could definitely see the pros and cons. Very few people are going to be able to pull off that degree of video sophistication with yeah. you know their own staff, <laughs> you know, unless you've got some some really sharp folks you know, and you give them a really solid amount of time and you're very unlikely to catch up with Google in that particular category. It is interesting to see a couple companies doing things like this. Like there's a company out here that I I think now markets out in in your neck of the woods in the UK 
called House, H-O-U-Z-Z, House.com, where they've got some machine learning program that'll take pictures of a home and you can click on like the, the couch or you can click on the lamp or you can click on the carpet and potentially purchase that actual item or items that look extremely similar visually. And again, I think that that's a really neat application, but being able to do that in video, I mean, must be an order of magnitude more difficult, certainly pre-transformative advertising wise. My last question, John, just being wary of time, and because I really did want to pick your brain on this one, again, you've grown a number of your own businesses, working with a lot of the bigger guys, you've had to see executives get caught up with big data and machine learning to come up with those creative ideas. Like you said, it's kind of a nascent space. They have to understand the applications. They have to know where it could apply in their business. Think creatively about their data sets and what that could yield in terms of machine learning applications. How are executives getting up to speed on these things, John, without going back to get a PhD in, in machine vision or machine learning somewhere? How do you see people successfully sort of grasping this as an executive who already has a lot to do? This is all about outcomes. This is not all about technology that goes with it. I mean, Teaching machine, when I talk to CEOs, I use Where's Wally, as we call it. I think it's Where's Waldo in the States, to just show that this is how pattern recognition works, this is how machine learning works, and they pretty much get it. I mean, they're all very bright people. They really are, they don't need to go back to college, they just need to be focused on the outcomes. But to be focused on the outcomes, they need to be given visibility to lots of use cases, applications, case studies, etc., so that they can get their heads around where the opportunities lie. That's what I do a lot of the time by colleagues at McKinsey is that I'm brought in to talk to customers with a view to surfacing the opportunities there and providing the inspiration level for the for the organization to be able to get its head around some of this stuff as well. And my focus there is to really get their heads around their opportunities in pre-sales and post-sales for augmentation and then replacement of human operators in the long term. It comes down to it's not necessarily learning. It's about inspiration. Where people draw inspiration now, I mean, as far as I know, we're working on compiling a pretty good number of them here. But I don't really know anywhere where other than, okay, let me bounce around Wired.com and TechCrunch and all these other places. Where, Where do people go for that kind of inspiration? Man, I'd really love to get a good grasp on a lot of AI applications and what's being used where and how well it's sort of you know, yielding some kind of result in whether it be marketing, customer service, what have you, where do people go to explore a good enough number of those ideas? I mean, you know, hiring a consulting firm that does a lot of that work is obviously one way to skin the cat. How else do you see executives getting up to speed with that inspiration aspect? What's really interesting is I'm an avid reader of The Economist and sometime contributor, and they have absolutely changed in the past 12 months. Uh, AI is a frequent conversation there and they are exceedingly good at explaining and making it very clear what the applications are what the issues are etc so and, and the, the, the same goes for the financial times the wall street journal the new york post etc it's now a question simply that the journalists of this world are actually catching up and starting to get with the tide on all of this and then it will happen naturally from there I've got my fingers crossed that we'll continue to have more and more fruitful coverage of this domain in, in ways that really explain the technology. I've actually may, may in fact have seen a couple articles in The Economist now that I think about it. I'm glad to hear that they're picking up on things in that category as well. John, that's that's literally all that we had for time, but I, I more than appreciate you sharing your insights from businesses big and small with us here on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thank you very much. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. 
If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.